Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you that we have a, a cornerstone. We have a sure foundation that's been built on your son, our Savior, Jesus. Lord, as we come to the text this morning, for some this has been a very hard week. Lord, there was sin to wrestle with and confess. There was heartache from loss. There was news that the tumor is still there. The call from a wayward child, or perhaps the divorce papers were finalized. Lord, it's so refreshing that we can come into your presence. We can lay this all at your feet. You know all of this ahead of time, but you allow us to come. And as we're going to see, Nehemiah did just that. As we study this text, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you would have. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to the book of Nehemiah. And remember that there are these study guides that are free, one per household out in the uh, area in the foyer. Uh, you don't have to take one. Uh, we will not give you a test over them, uh, but it would help for the next quiz. But yes, they're available, right? So those are free for you. As you turn to Nehemiah, there are three R's of education, those basic skills that are taught supposedly these days in school, reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, the phrase is interesting because it supposedly originated from Sir William Curtis at a dinner being hosted by the Board of Education of England in 1795. Here's the kicker. Curtis was illiterate, and he thought all three words started with R. <laughs> Don't you love it? Well, Nehemiah gives us a prayer in chapter 1, and I would argue it's one of the greatest prayers in the entire Old Testament. It's not three R's that we're going to look at. It's four R's today, and that's the outline there in your notes. If you're watching online, you should see an electronic copy of the notes but we're going to see Nehemiah recognizes God's greatness. He requires God's forgiveness. He rehearses God's promises and he requests God's assistance. So let's look at this text as we do. Uh, let me just, well, let's look at the text and then, well, we know we need to paint the backdrop. For some of us, this is the first Sunday you weren't here last week and you've not read the book yet, right? So let me just first back up just a hair, and that is, what's the time frame? Who is this Nehemiah? What's going on? Well, first of all, we're about 445 BC. We are located 850 miles from Jerusalem in the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is Susa. Artaxerxes is king. There's a name for you if you're trying to find a, a boy name for next year. Artaxerxes, right? Gazuntite. He is the king of the Babylon or the of the Persians. They have defeated the Babylonians. We know that under the Persian Empire, they have allowed Jews to return to their homeland. In 538, 42,000 plus Jews will return, and under that time frame, they will rebuild a temple. 
It ain't what she used to be, but it's not Solomon's temple, but at least they have a temple, which is key. And we talked about that last week, why it's so significant. Nehemiah, our scene takes place here under Artaxerxes, and he hears news, we talked about this in the first three verses, that Jerusalem lays in ruins, at least the walls and the gates. He's also hearing there's concern with reform. And so in, that is this historical backdrop. And remember, there are three key theological truths of this book that you don't want to miss. We're even going to see it in the prayer. And that is number one, God is ultimately, he's in charge. <laughs> no one, no thing is going to thwart God's plan. Secondly, there's a call for the people of God to walk in obedience. Nehemiah is really, a, a, it's glorious on one note, it's also sad on another because he brings reform and ultimately there's no reform of the heart. And that's the third theological truth that underlies this book is that God is still working. And the glorious news is that if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, there's been a transformation. There's a dwelling of the Spirit. And that restoration looks to the future, but it's been established with Christ coming and ascending of the Spirit. So that is where we are. Let's look at this prayer now that Nehemiah gives. He's heard the news. In verse 3, in verse 4, it says, when I heard these things. Now, Nehemiah, how would he have heard this? We're told, chapter 2, verse 1, well, at the, actually also at the end of chapter 1, that he is the cupbearer. He's the trusted servant of Artaxerxes. So he's privy to all the foreign diplomacy, all that's transpiring. And it says, when I heard these things, I slumped down, crying and mourning for several days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, please, O Lord God of heaven. That's repeated. It's important. We'll talk about it in a minute. Great and awesome God who keeps his loving covenant with those who love him and obey his commandments. May your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I am praying to you today throughout both day and night on behalf of your servants, the Israelites, I'm confessing the sins of the Israelites that, now watch the pronoun, we have committed against you. Both I, myself, and my family have sinned. We have behaved corruptly against you, not obeying the commandments of the, and the statutes and the judgments that you commanded your servant Moses. Please recall the word you commanded your servant Moses. And here Nehemiah is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, if you act unfaithfully, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you repent and obey my commandments and do them, even those who are dispersed will be brought back, it says, from even remote locations. I will gather them there and bring them to the places I have chosen for my name to reside. They are your servants. They are your people whom you have redeemed by your mighty strength and by your powerful hand. Please, O oh Lord, it's bookend. He started with please, O oh Lord. He ends it here. Listen attentively to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who take pleasure in showing respect to your name. Grant your servant success today and show compassion to me in the presence of this man, that being Artaxerxes, now I was a cupbearer for the king. This prayer, again, it breaks down into four very important R's, which I think could govern even our own prayer life. The first of these is he recognizes, as you see, God's greatness, even in the midst of horror. And you say, why is he mourning? Is it because cousin 
George is being persecuted back in Jerusalem or that the, the city walls are in ruin. We talked a little bit about this last week. No, I think he's concerned about the Lord's reputation. Chapter 1, verse 9, he even states, you've done all this, this land, all of this is for your name. And notice how he closes in prayer by showing respect to your name. Packer in his work on Nehemiah makes this great, well, he also argues that the primary reason for Nehemiah's angst is due to the dis, is not due to the disarray of Jerusalem. Rather, it is God's chosen city. It's his holy city. That is his name that lays in, tar, is tarnished. And I think he's right. It is the Lord, his reputation that is at stake. And I think that's what Nehemiah, the reason he weeps and mourns. Now that phrase is key. If we did a little word study and, and looked at this in the Hebrew, that phrase occurs when Jacob is told that his son Joseph has supposedly died. Wow. So you get, the, get the heaviness of Nehemiah. It's equivalent to when Jacob heard that he thought his beloved son had died. It's the same phrase used when the Israelites mourned the death of Moses. And the phrase occurs one other time, and that's in 2 Samuel, when David mourns the loss of his son Absalom. This is heavy. It's not like, oh, it's a shame this is happening back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is, it's intense. It's all-consuming. It's debilitating. And it's just plain overwhelming. When is the last time you or I have wept and mourned over sin and its effect on God's people. Whether it's abortion, substance abuse, sexual perversion, sex slavery, I mean, the list goes on. When have we just sat and wept day in and day out for the sin that is plaguing our society? William Wilberforce, you know this fellow because in British history back in 1833 due to his work for over 20 years the Slavery Abolition Act was passed in London which forbid in the British Empire for slavery to occur. What you may not realize is Wilberforce was a very devout believer. It's what drove him as he looked at the ills of society. He writes it is not the great end of religion particularly the glory of Christianity to extinguish the malignant passions, to curb the violence, to control the appetites, to make us compassionate, kind, forgiving one another, to make us good husbands, good fathers, I might add good mothers, good friends, and to render us active and useful in the discharge of the relative social and civil abuse, uh, duties. We cannot bury our heads in the sand when it comes to our culture let me challenge all of us, even this week, take some time, <laughs> pick the sin, just turn on the news. What is it in our society that we need just to bend our knees and absolutely weep? Let's look at abortion. <laughs> the day that we, <laughs> we applaud murder. They were chanting outside a church in New York City this morning, I kill babies, the pro-abortionist. It's not only... The sin goes on, it's, it's applauded. This reminds me of Romans 1. Not only do you do it, you flaunt it. The mourning was accompanied, as we see in the text, by great fasting. 
So it's not only the how he does it, but notice it's also the who. Look at the text. Look at verse 4. It says, he fasts and he mourns, praying before the God of heaven. We're told in chapter 2, he does this not just for a few days, though that's when he then delivers the prayer. The text tells us he prayed for four months. Wow. What a man. (laughs) Four months he weeps and mourns and cries out to God for help. And notice that the, the, the Net Bible translates this please at both ends. Uh, another English translation, which is very acceptable, may translate it, oh, you know, oh, Lord. Um, this interjection is emphatic. It's used over 12 times in the Hebrew Bible and always in reference to the Lord. And as noted in the Net Bible notes, the term is normally reserved for pleas for mercy in life and death situations and for forgiveness of heinous sin. Wow. Here's Nehemiah. He hears this news and, and the, he breaks down in mourning. And he says, Lord, oh Lord, I just plead to you. And notice what he says about the Lord. First he calls him God of heaven, which is repeated twice. It it speaks of the Lord's transcendence. He can see what's going on in Jerusalem. He can see what's going on in Susa. The the Lord knows all things, and he also knows our hearts. (laughs) And that's where Nehemiah is going to go with this. The Lord can see all. He's aware of all. You, the God who sits above the, the earth. And the, you know, think about, it's the same type of pattern the Lord established for us as we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, you sit, O Lord, above all things. Which, by the way, is not only comforting, but it's also convicting. And that's the idea here. And so Nehemiah's prayer, first of all, reminds us that the Lord sees or is aware of our situation. You may not think that today. You may, whether it's personal, communal, or it's, it's as, as a culture. God, do you not see what's going on? Yes, he does. He did in Persia back in 445 BC. He sees what's happening right here in Westfield in 2022. He's fully aware of what's happening at your home address. <laughs> he knows. He sees. He's the God of the heavens. Secondly, notice what Nehemiah says. You are great and you are awesome. Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Nehemiah might be serving the greatest earthly king at that time, Artaxerxes, but I can assure you the Persian ruler is no comparison to the king who rules over all the earth, right? (laughs) Nehemiah's prayer reminds us that the Lord not only sees all, but he's aware of our situation and he is in control. That's great. And you say, and remember, it's a chaotic mess back in Jerusalem. And yet Nehemiah recognizes, no, you're great and you're awesome and you see. And then I love the next line. Notice what he says about the Lord. He says, you are one who keeps his loving covenant. You've made an oath. You made a legal contract. You didn't have to, but you made a legal contract with your people, the Israelites. And notice it says it's a loving contract. It could be rendered covenant and loyal love. In other words, it is a covenant that's born out of and sustained, carried forth by love. It it drips love from you, O God. That's the kind of covenant you've made. 
And he's made a new covenant, by the way, with those of us who know Christ as his Savior, and it too drips with great love. It was undeserved. And he says, that's the kind of God you are. You not only see, you're not only in control of all, but you also act in love, grace, and in faithfulness. Wow. We even got out the starting block, right? This is awesome. We can run with this. Even in the midst of the tragic news, Nehemiah displays a proper perspective. One commentator aptly writes, Nehemiah reflects on the character of God, not only for his encouraging aspect of staunchness and love, but first of all, for his majesty, which puts man, whether friend or foe, in his place. That's how he starts his prayer. When difficult times come, we must turn first to the Lord, right? <laughs> we, we have to begin with God. If we begin with ourselves, we're in deep trouble. I hear people say, well, I had a bad experience in church, so I, I don't go anymore. Or, if you had been with me when I'd gone through that church experience, you can see why I, I'm not about to help in any capacity. I'm done. I mean, that's like saying, I, I'm not going to go out to eat because I had a really bad experience at one restaurant. <laughs> or or uh, my computer glitched this week, no more technology, I'm done. I Really? And the problem is, you don't start with yourself, you start with God. And, and that's where Nehemiah begins with this. I mean, he's a great leader. And, and we're going to see something else that occurs there in a minute. But ne I mean, think about this. Nehemiah had a lot to be angry about. He's a servant to a pagan king. Yeah, it's glamorous. He gets to taste the wine and have the baklava. I mean, that's nice. But, you know, I'd rather be home with family back in Israel. The news that he just heard. I mean, the disarray of his hometown, the, the mistreatment of his own people. There's a lot to be bitter about concerning the Lord. He says, no, I know who you are. And the first thing he does is he turns to the Lord. And Nehemiah's prayer, prayer, again, it reminds us, the Lord sees all. He is in control. He is faithful and gracious. So what is the first R of what I would call spiritual godliness or leadership? It's, first of all, recognizing God. Secondly, it's going to require God's forgiveness. I think one of the most shocking Aspects of Nehemiah's prayer is found in a pronoun that he uses, and I just highlighted earlier, but in verse 6 when he says, we have committed this sin. What, what do you mean we, Kimisabi? I mean, what, what are you talking about? You, you were back over there 150 years ago when the Israelites rebelled and the Babylonians took them out. You, you've not been back in Jerusalem to help, you know, you could have rallied the troops and built the wall. I mean, you're over here. Well, that's their fault. I mean, you're trying to faithfully serve even a pagan king. And yet he says, we, I, have sinned. A correct view of God, I will argue, will always show a correct view of oneself. And it will never be pretty. Not before a holy God. I don't care how great you are. <laughs> you pale in comparison to an almighty God. We all do. When Nehemiah when reflects on the character of a God and recognizes his own plight, he then confesses his own sin and the sins of Israel. Afflictions, difficulties in life, often can help jog one's memory, can't they? <laughs> and remind us of who we are. Daniel, Daniel in the book of, well, Daniel, <laughs> chapter nine, you know the book, right? Daniel gives a similar prayer as Nehemiah. 
In Daniel 9, listen to this. Listen to what he says. Now, the, back, the backdrop, he's, he's just been told that they're going to be in Babylonian exile for 70 years. Not a happy day, right? That's not the great news. But listen to what Daniel says and think about the prayer we just read of Nehemiah. Oh, Lord, please, Lord. Oh, great and awesome God, who is faithful to his covenant. Sound familiar? With those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. Wow. We have done what is wrong and wicked. We have rebelled at turning from your commandments and standards. We have not paid attention to your servants, the prophets, who spoke by your authority. Both Daniel and Nehemiah recognized not only the character of God, not only his faithfulness to his, his covenant, but they also realized their own sin. Gene Getz in his book, When Your Goals Seem Out of Reach, a uh, commentary on Nehemiah, he says, neither man rationalized, Daniel and Nehemiah, rationalized away their involvement in Israel's corporate failure as a nation. Swindoll writes, there's no discordant notes of blame, only the resonant notes of, of compassion. Nehemiah takes ownership. It's one of the first keys of leadership. We need leaders in this country, in this world right now that would just take ownership. Ownership for sin, admitting our faults, taking responsibility. Uh, he doesn't downplay his sin. Did you catch twice he says, it's against you that we have sinned. Twice in your word. I saw this quote this week, it's great. The reason I've never made buckets of money for my company is because nobody ever gave me a bucket. <laughs> Yeah, let's face it. There are, nor will there be, any viable excuses when engaging an all-knowing God. <laughs> I was listening to a group of teens that were in our driveway shooting hoop. And one said, well, you know, and some of them weren't making it. And one said, well, you know, I don't know if that basket's, it's too tall, I think. And I said, boy, the, the sun is in my eyes when I'm shooting. Another one said, well, I'm really tired. It's been a long day. Uh, I love it. All of these excuses for why you can't make the hoop. We live in a culture that's quick to blame others, their environment or lack of resources for one's own sin. Instead of taking ownership, one is offended and plays the victim card due to one's race, social status, you know, gender, sexual preference, or upbringing, you fill in the blank. And as I said, we need spiritual leaders, leaders in the public arena, in the church, in the home, at work, and at school who are first willing to admit their sin. Leading by example. Nehemiah was willing to do this for the Lord's name. It, you know, it's, it's hard to exalt the name of the Lord in our lives when we're trying to self-preserve rather than self-deny. But John the Baptist said it. He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. And Nehemiah starts with a proper perspective of God and he moves to a proper perspective of himself and he realizes, yeah. And so he recognizes who God is. He, he requires God's forgiveness. And the third R is he rehearses God's promises. This is what we see starting in verse 8 and 9. And he echoes Nehemiah's words. I love that he's using scripture as part of his prayer. 
Ivan French in his book, Principles and Practice of Prayer. It's a little book and it's, it's worth its weight in gold. Principles and Practices of Prayer. He says, a common study of the Bible is essential for the nurture of prayer life and a consistent prayer life is essential in understanding the Bible. It's what governs it. In fact, I, I wrote, why? Why is it good that we use Old Testament or New Testament references in our prayers? I mean, the Lord doesn't need to be reminded of his words, does he? Well, no, but... Using scripture reminds us of God's truth and it serves as rails to keep us on track and to guide us, bringing clarity and structure to how and what we address in prayer. It's no wonder Chuck Swiddell, I love this. He calls Nehemiah a leader from the knees up. That's Nehemiah. He's on his knees, he's praying, he understands. And here's this Persian cupbearer who's reminded, yes, the Lord is in charge and that his reputation is at stake. See, look at this. And just one more verse. I just want to highlight in verse 10. It says, these are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your mighty strength and by your powerful hand. Our present failures does not nullify God's hand in the future. In fact, his power, his love, his strength, and his sovereignty are not limited to or extinguished by his creatures, are they? No. That's why he's the God of heaven. He's the one who sees all. And Nehemiah, he understands, he recognizes God's character and who he is. He requires God's forgiveness. He rehearses God's promises in verses 8 through 10. And then he moves to a request for God's assistance. Notice, starting in verse 11, he says, Please, O Lord, listen tentatively. He's, he's going to ask two things here. Don't miss this. First, he's praying, Lord, would you, would you hear me? And, and you think, well, wait a minute. Of course he hears you. But this is one of, uh, it's one of crying out to God, a plea. And you see the humility here. Your servant. The word servant or servants is used eight times in this prayer. He's understanding this is our relationship to you, O Lord. It's what we should be doing. And again, the driving force of Nehemiah's prayer is ultimately to see God's name be exalted. Isn't that great? When you reflect on your prayers this past week. I did that. And sadly, I, you know, it's, it's hard to preach because especially when the Lord is taking a two by four to you first. And uh, someone said, how was your week? I said, oh, it was a little rough because this text was very convicting because I looked at my prayers and I, I find that not always is God's reputation the driving force of what I pray. I mean, I confess, it's, sometimes it's the personal desires of fruition or some miraculous healing to occur or for problems to go away or the necessary resources to lead. But what I should pray, be praying is, Lord, I lay all this at your feet, right? <laughs> I, all of this is so that you might be glorified. And in all of these situations, Lord, it's so that your name might be exalted. That's our prayer as elders here at CBF. <laughs> it's not about us. It's about Christ's name being exalted, Right? And that's true whether you volunteer folding bulletins to changing diapers. It's so that the Lord's name might be glorified. If the name of the Lord is sought first, 
I would argue our speech, our actions, our relationships, our thoughts, our priorities will be altered. They will. I mean, think about this. Not only does Nehemiah pray for the people and the situation back in Jerusalem, he also expresses, as you're going to see here, his willingness to serve. He not only mourns, he's like, Lord, if you need me to, notice what the text says. Oh, Lord, listen attentively and to the prayer of your servants who take pleasure. Grant your servant success. There's a note that he's wanting to move further into this. And that leads us to the second part of his prayer. And is that that the Lord will work. Now, let me tell you about a cupbearer. During the Persian period, according to Edmund Yamuchi, Nehemiah would have been a man of great influence, one with close and trusted access to the king, one who could well determine who gets to even see the king. And above all, Nehemiah would have enjoyed undeserved confidence by the king. I mean, he had it all at his fingertips as he served Artaxerxes. And yet, he says, Oh God, allow me to approach, and notice the text says, this man. And you might think, well, that seems a little disrespectful. No, it's to tie, it's to draw us into the next verse, which is chapter 2, verse 1. This man is Artaxerxes. So it's, it's building this up as is not being disrespectful. In order for the Lord to answer Nehemiah's prayer, we have one huge hurdle which we don't see in Nehemiah, but if we open up the book of Ezra, chapter four, verse 21, we'll find out that Artaxerxes, the same king, says there is to be no more work done in Jerusalem. Oops. Oops. Not only do we have the city in disarray, the man that Nehemiah has to talk to is the very one who gave an edict, there is to be no more work done in Jerusalem. That's huge. And, and so when you look at this, you realize there's, there's two things going on here. Number one, Nehemiah could be seen as being very presumptuous with Artaxerxes. And you don't want to tick off the emperor, <laughs> right? Uh, you could fall out of favor. It also could be as seen as subversive, and Nehemiah could easily be seen as the enemy. No wonder he says, Lord, have compassion on me. Go before me as I enter this. Now, let me give you three things to hang on your beak today. That's 445 BC. You say, that's fine. I've never been to Susa. Uh, you know, I've never met Artaxerxes. I can't even say the name or spell it. It's got a lot of X's. Okay, great. Well, what does this mean for me? Let me give you three. To be used by the Lord, we must be set aside sin, apathy, and sluggishness. The four R's, they start with the Lord and it's a call to repent and then it's a, the Lord use us, right? That's what we see in Nehemiah's prayer. It, it, it is proactive. Holiness is not gained by sleeping with the pillow under, or the Bible under your pillow. It's not gonna happen. We've gotta be proactive. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson in his book, The Lord's Prayer, makes this comment. Let life and money go, welcome Christ. When God's glory weighs heaviest in the balance and we are willing to suffer the loss of all rather than God's name should suffer, we do in a high degree hollow God's name. Careful praying the four R's, right? The, this idea of, Lord, I know who you are. I, 
I confess my sin. Here's what we need. And, you know, I want to be used. We have to be careful with those four R's because in so praying that you'll be reminded, first of all, who the Lord is. Secondly, you'll be reminded of who you are. And third is you're volunteering. <laughs> because if you understand who he is and you understand you're a servant, it's the least you can do. When Jesus said, look to the, the fields, they're wide unto harvest. We need laborers to go pray that the Lord would bring laborers. I mean, he's saying, by the way, you're going, right? Just pray it and we're, we're going to take you. We need to be praying that the Lord would raise up people within the church to meet the needs of the Lord's work on this globe. And how does that happen? As we see, we need to be used by the Lord. We've, we've got to set aside sin. We need to recognize who he is and who we are. Secondly, even when we're walking in godliness and seeking to serve the Lord, he may have us wait. Four months, Nehemiah prays. Four months. It's huge. When I think about this, Joseph spent, some scholars say, 14 years in an Egyptian prison cell before he came second in command of all of Egypt. Moses, we know, spent 40 years herding sheep in the Midian wilderness. That was bad, right? Uh, just make sure you're awake. Some of you are thinking about, oh man, I did not get a Mother's Day card, right? Hannah struggled with infertility until the birth of her son Samuel. Despite immense wealth and power, David's told, no, you will not build the temple. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. Yuck. Facing all the aches and pains of old age, Anna climbed those steps daily to serve at the temple for years until she beheld her Savior as a baby. James Vaughn writes, waiting has four purposes in the Lord's work. It practices the patience of faith. It gives time for preparation for the coming gift. It makes the blessing the sweeter when it arrives. And it shows the sovereignty of God to give just when he feels he needs to. Waiting on the Lord. Psalm 37, commit your future to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act on your behalf. Seniors, we're going to honor you from high school, graduating in a couple weeks in church. This is a great text. I mean, engrave this, not a tattoo, but engrave it on your card, on the window, or on the, the mirror. Psalm 37, trust in him. He will act on your behalf. He will vindicate you in broad daylight and publicly defend you just cause. Wait patiently for the Lord. With confidence, it says, and, I'll, and later on in the Psalm, verse 25, I love this verse. It says, I was once young and now I'm old. I've never seen the godly abandoned or their children forced to search for food. Why? Because if we don't wait on the Lord and we run ahead of him, we're going to have a serious problem. Nehemiah recognized who the Lord is. He recognized the problem, but he waited. He bathed it in prayer. He sought the Lord. And in, in God's timing, as we're going to see next week, he will approach Artaxerxes. God is moving, orchestrating the events. And in those four months, Nehemiah's had a lot of time to think, what does it mean to go back to Jerusalem? What would that entail? Et cetera, et cetera. It's laying the groundwork. And the Lord is doing that. He's also working the heart of Artaxerxes, who's going to give up his trusted cupbearer to go do this. Uh, it, it, it's all in God's timing. He's the one who sits in the heavens. So why do we worry? Why do we fret? Right? He's in charge. Hmm. 
And finally, we must remember that the Lord wishes us to do his will more than we do. Now think about that for a minute. Thank the Lord for a man such as Nehemiah who was willing to take ownership and lead. Well done, Nehemiah. Woo, we love you. All right? Uh, there's a name for a son. And one who was, took that rare opportunity and God used for such a blessing. The Lord didn't need Nehemiah. In fact, the plan had already been set in motion all the way back in Jeremiah 29. Listen to this. For the Lord says, only when the 70 years of Babylon's rule are over, I will again take up consideration for you. I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your homeland. For I have a plan for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And the, the, the verses go on. In other words, the Lord already laid out. Yes, it's been awful under the Babylonian deportations, the refugees, the, the captives that were taken. But 70 years later, that was fulfilled with the Persians. The first Jews went back to build the temple and the Lord said, I have a plan to prosper you, to care for you. It's not that Nehemiah was at the right place at the right time. It's that Nehemiah was willing to do the Lord's work. And the Lord honored that and said, Nehemiah, I'm gonna use you for this. I've had students, I don't know what the Lord's will is. Do I marry her or not marry her? I mean, what do I do? And the point, I would argue, it's the four R's. As you take the student back, who is recognizing who the Lord is, requiring if there's forgiveness that needs to be made, rehearse what needs to be done, and request God's help. Seek, move forward. Wait on him in the process, but be diligent. The Lord isn't going to hang you out to dry. He, he would love to use you if you're willing to be used by him. But he needs someone like a Nehemiah who says, yet yeah, Lord, you are the great and mighty one. I am a sinner who needs forgiveness. And thus, then Lord, may you use me. Recognize, first R, second, require, rehearse, and request. And what does the, the scriptures promise? He will direct your paths. Why? For his name's sake. Father, what a prayer. What a convicting prayer. <laughs> One of the reasons you used this man mightily for you was he's willing to take ownership for his sin. And Lord, there may be someone here this morning that has never happened for the believer, those who've professed you as your son, as their savior, we're told in 1 John, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive. But there has to be a point in life where we repent of our sin, recognizing we need a savior. And the text tells us, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, perhaps there's someone here this morning that has never done that, and it's time to bend the knee. It's time to stop playing games because you, O oh Lord of the sovereign one, you sit in the heavens and you see all. For some of us, Lord, it's been a time of where we just really need to stop passing the buck and taking ownership. Time to grow up. <laughs> time to say, yep, I fall short here, here, and here before you, almighty God. 
So it's time to bend the knee. It's not going to happen. Or use being used by you is not going to happen until that occurs. Because you require servants who are willing to bend the knee, who are willing to say, yes, Lord, it's all about you. It is not about me. Thank you for your word. May we be servants who are turning our eyes on you, Lord, recognizing that all we have, all that we will have, flows from your gracious hand. In Jesus' name, amen.